0: Studying out of Psalm number three this morning and follow along as I read the word of God. Psalm number three, a Psalm of David, when he fled from Absalom, his son. Oh, Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah, but you, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to Yahweh and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. I lay down and slept. I woke again for Yahweh sustained me. Will not be afraid of many thousands of people who have set themselves against me all around. Arise, O Yahweh, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to Yahweh. Your blessing be on your people. Say, La. Thus reads the word of the living God. Uh, The arrangement of the Psalter is what I want to draw your attention to. To This morning, as many of you may know, the Psalter or the Psalms is divided into five books. Uh, Each book contains about 30 to 40 Psalms in its arrangement. Um, The key observation I want to draw your attention to that is that each book contains different overarching thematic material so that each book has a distinct tone. Uh, that differentiates it from other books. Uh, some scholars even go so far to argue that the five books of the Psalms matches the five books of the Torah, uh, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Uh, I don't want to discredit their labors, for they're much more smarter than I am, um, as there are you know, observations and themes that matches this hypothesis. But I, the point I want to put forth to you this morning, when we look at the overarching structure of the Psalter is um, pay attention to, pay attention to the structure, pay attention to the overarching structure of a book, uh, one as large as the longest book of the Bible, the Psalms, and one is as, as short as Obadiah. Uh, and more in the New Testament, uh, when you compare the structure, the overarching structure of the Gospels uh, to a short letter such as Philemon. Um, We're in Psalm number three this morning, found in book one. And as we have established previously, uh, Psalms one and two uh, set the tone for this first book. Psalm one describes the, the unique position and favor the righteous man has in God, and Psalm 2 speaks of the kingdom of God, distinctly ruled by God's anointed one, uh, populated by righteous citizens of God. Uh, furthermore, uh, we discovered and I put forth to you that Psalms 1 and 2 act as the gateways, the doorway into the Psalter, especially this first book, book number 1. Uh, and as you continue reading, hopefully on your own, you'll read of the escapades of the righteous, uh, particularly of the, the man after God's own heart, King David himself, uh, as he serves as a type of Christ. And he sets the course um, within God's kingdom as David was the anointed one of God in a physical sense. Uh, and also he lives and he uh, breathes and he um, worships in A fallen, broken, earthly kingdom ruled by the prince of the power of the air, Satan himself. So to some degree, you can see parallels uh, of the book of Genesis in the first book of the Psalter. You have men and women of faith counted as righteous before God as he did with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob our, the patriarchs of faith as they sojourned, as they lived in kingdoms and countries, not of their own, but pining for a better country or a better kingdom. Uh, book one mirrors the emotions found in the drama of the narrative in Genesis, uh, the first book of God's law. The question I now want to pose to you since we have established a roadmap of sorts into Uh, the entire Psalter, and especially into this first book of an anthology of five books. Um, The first two Psalms acts as the gateway. Um, My question is for you, after stepping through this gateway, after stepping through Psalms one and two, what would be the natural, logical first Psalm we find? What kind of themes Would the editors of the Psalter, as they are moved by the Holy Spirit to structure Psalms 1, 2, and 3, bring to our attention after Psalms 1 and 2? In other words, what kind of themes welcome us as we move into the world of Psalms? The title for this morning's sermon together here at Family Time is Welcome to Trouble." Welcome to trouble. Because the moment we learn about the righteous man in Psalm 1 and his context, God's kingdom in Psalm 2, ruled by God's anointed, we find him, and by extension, we find ourselves in trouble. Trouble. Here are some preliminary observations I want to draw your attention to about this third psalm. This is the first psalm that ascribes Authorship. This is the first psalm that ascribes authorship. Particularly, this psalm is ascribed to be written by King David. Uh, The first and second psalms are thought to be one psalm, but of unknown author, but tradition states that it most likely was David as well. Uh, But that's only from Jewish historical tradition. Nothing within the text indicates this psalm to be a song of David. But here we have clearly in the first opening lines. Uh, Our verse 1 starts with, O Lord, O Yahweh, but in the Jewish text, verse 1 starts with a psalm of David. Identifying the author. So we have the first identifiable psalm. Second preliminary observation is that this is also the first psalm that gives us the occasion of the psalm. Immediately after ascribing authorship, again, in Hebrews verse 1, so to speak, David writes why he is writing. Here we have David fleeing from his handsome, charismatic, cunning, and political son, Absalom. We find the narrative parallel in 2 Samuel 15, if you want to jot that down. Notice that this episode in David's life, 2 Samuel 15, is after 2 Samuel 11. 11, which is also that momentous, depressing account of David's grave sin, his murder of Uriah and his adultery with Bathsheba. And so this political coup is the direct result of David's disobedience as God promises to David from the prophet Nathan that the sword will never leave you. However, as we read in other psalms, David repents and he still seeks communion with God and he still entrusts himself to God. And so this psalm, though he is in trouble, he's in turmoil, he is in on the run, um, we'll find, as with other psalms in David's life, that he still trusts in God. And so notice the first of many superscripts describing the occasion of the psalms. Praise the Lord for extra help, because it does deepen our study, because we get the historical context. Lastly, last preliminary observation before we dive into the text, is that this is the first psalm that introduces the musical liturgical term, Selah. Selah. Sometimes when the Psalms are read aloud, the Selah is ignored, and that is okay. Uh, Sometimes it's read and it's mispronounced, and that is okay too. Uh, But the reason why I want to draw your attention to a word that literally means pause is because, one, first, every word of God is inspired and therefore serves a purpose for our edification and for His glory. And so we should and we must pay attention to every single word that comes forth from the lips of God. And second, the term, since the term selah literally means pause, we should give and pay attention to why we're pausing. We should give special heed to the context in which this pause, this musical term is inserted. Um, The term selah, when it's used in the psalms as you read, it indicates that we, the reader, we, the listener, and we, the singer, should and must give thoughtful consideration to the words just sung. That's why we pause. Therefore, every time you read selah in the psalms, give a thoughtful and meditative pause of what was just sung. This helps Us, because Selah gives, at least in Psalm 3, gives us the structure of the psalm. If you notice, every two verses, besides verses 5 and 6, uh, ends in Selah. And it calls us, the singer and reader, to give a thoughtful pause to what was just sung. And so structurally speaking, oftentimes a psalm is divided in terms of where the Selahs are placed. This is not a hard and fast rule, uh, but in terms of our psalm, Psalm Number three this morning, it is a helpful divider. And so every two verses introduces a new thought. And so our sermon this morning will be broken up into four parts of two sermons each. Nice is up quite nicely. Two verse couplets. These four verses uh, build into one overarching thought. That Christians, the righteous who live by faith, breathe in God's kingdom, are no strangers to trouble. Rather, the righteous live by faith in the midst of trouble, as God is the ultimate deliverer from trouble, ultimate savior from trouble. And so this psalm centers around David in the midst of trouble and yet still clinging to God to be his salvation from it. Therefore, we as Christians not only brace ourselves for trouble, but we welcome it. Because we know everything is from God as he orchestrates every event, every circumstance for our good and for, our, for his glory. Let's walk through this third psalm. And instead of giving all the headings beforehand, as I usually do, uh, I just want to walk you through David's trouble slowly. So not to spoil the good ending, um, but also uh, give, help us give thoughtful consideration to each section. And so we'll take each heading one at a time. And so this first heading is Confessing Our Trouble. Confessing Our Trouble, verses one and two. O Lord, O Yahweh, how many are my foes? Many are rising against me. Many are saying of my soul, there is no salvation for him in God. Selah. David opens with this line, O Yahweh. This is a distinct clarion call to the one person David cares about. Uh, there are no other calls to action in this psalm as compared to other psalms uh, because you can sense David's desperation. Uh, sometimes our prayers are very much like that. There's no time, there's no space, no mental capacity to address God by his other titles, by his other names. Sometimes you just simply have to cry out to God for help. And this is the same attitude David is exemplifying here. David cuts straight to the problem. How my adversaries have increased or how many are my foes? David is relaying to God what God already knows. God knows David finds himself in an unprecedented, uh, the word of 2020, unprecedented position. The king on the run, hunted by his son. But David in this prayer, or more specifically known, David in this lament, he cries out plain and simple what is happening. And that is the nature of confession. Confession is the soul recognizing through words its own state. Confession puts into words what the soul is going through. Uh, Confession recognizes the honest state of things and verbalizes it so that the entire person from head to toe recognizes his or her reality truthfully. Because confession is necessary because through confession it removes any delusion any denied truth, any fooling yourself. And in turn, it it embraces truth for what it is. It embraces reality for what is going on. In David's case, he confesses that his enemies has increased. Uh, Those whom he never could have imagined to be his enemies before has now truly become his enemies. Uh, There is no what ifs, there is no Let me do this so I can win my son Absalom back. There's no going back to appease him and striking a deal, compromising. This confession is the plain recognition that this is the reality of David's life. My son is trying to kill me. Notice next the beautiful use of combined parallelism. We briefly touched upon that last week. Notice in the latter half of verse one, many are rising against me. And then notice in the beginning of the beginning half of verse two, many are saying of my soul. Um, the two halves of verse one echo the same thought that David's foes are multiplying, his enemies are increasing. And then verse two echo the thought that there is a taunt being uh, relayed to him. And so those two verses match up logically, but they're connected structurally, syntactically, lexically by word, many, by the word many uh, to give this holistic picture that um, many multitude are growing. His foes are multiplying. David's chances of survival are growing slimmer by the minute. And because of his chances of survival are naturally decreasing, because the increase of his foes, logically from his enemy's perspective, uh, the chances of Yahweh saving David decreases as well. And that is the thought process of his enemies. That is the situation David recognizes and he confesses. And that is what he first wants us to, as the listener, to ponder, say law, pause and consider does this make sense for the man or the woman of faith just because your problems increase your troubles increase does that mean Yahweh cannot save does that mean Yahweh cannot deliver just because your problems grow does that mean the chances of Yahweh saving you shrink David confesses his trouble Quoting what his opponents say of him and his God, and to some degree we empathize with David. Oftentimes when we find ourselves in our own troubles, we start to believe the lies that our troubles want us to believe. We start to believe that God truly cannot overcome this sin we are wrestling with. Or he cannot save a loved one that has made a terrible life choice. Or he cannot heal our family from physical ailments, from cancers, heart disease, or even spiritual ailments. He cannot bring back children who have walked away from the Lord. He cannot get you out of this financial bind. Say Pause and consider. When we confess our troubles before God, we announce to God not only our dependency to him, but also our logical inconsistency in believing that God cannot handle our trouble. Rather, when we confess, we reorient ourselves. Uh, We rehearse to ourselves and we show ourselves through confession that God can and God does answer us in our trouble. And that brings us to our second heading. Look at verses three and four. Answer in trouble. Our second heading, answer in trouble. But you, O Lord, O Yahweh, are a shield about me, my glory and the lifter of my head. I cried aloud to the Lord and he answered me from his holy hill, Selah. What gives David the confidence to say, but you, O Lord. David knows his history. God has historically in the past time and time again has been the God of reversal, so to speak. Those who are weak are made strong. Those who are, who are strong have been brought down. Uh, just decades earlier, David remembers a young shepherd boy taking down a giant named Goliath. All of these things David knows and has experienced, but more importantly, David knows because God speaks of these things himself. For the Jew, for the Jewish people, The Exodus account was recounted again and again to prove to every Israelite that God has not abandoned them nor has he forgotten his promises. God was the very shield around them as they escaped into the imparted Red Sea. He was their shield in the wilderness from every physical need of manna and quail and water from the rock and medicine when they were bitten by snakes in the raised bronze serpent. And here David used uses this as an illusion of God being a shield for him as the exact illustration he needs for his present troubles. As God told Abraham that he was to be a shield around him in Genesis 15, David knows just as his ancestor Abraham was promised safety and protection, so will he be granted the same safety and protection. Because just eight chapters earlier, from Psalm, uh, 2 Samuel 15 to Second Samuel 7, what do we have? We have the Davidic covenant. God promised David that the throne, his line, um, shall not depart from David and that the loving kindness of God shall not depart from David's house. Funny you figure that because right now they're having familial quarrels. David moves from calling God his shield, a form of protection, to calling God his glory. The term here is more than our present modern conceptions of radiance or a brilliant light. The term here, glory, is one of weight. Think more of the modern hymn, Christ, our sure and steady anchor here. God is the weight. He is the ballast that holds Davis fast in the storm of troubles. God being David's glory is the one to whom David ascribes as his foundation, his bedrock, his anchor, his help. He is the one David turns to when he is in need above any other earthly help because he is rock solid. The term glory, kabod, gives the connotation of a heavy weight that anyone can rely on. And David's final description moves to illustrate the previous two. Yahweh is the lifter of heads. Yahweh lifted up the poor, sojourning Israelites in the wilderness, and he continues to do so for David and every member of God's covenant family. God is very familiar with the fallen countenance of man, that he is ascribed as the lifter of heads. When Cain's offering did not meet the requirements God sought, while his brother Abel's did, God provided the answer in which Cain can please God. Of course, we know he did not take God's counsel, but rather took matters into his own hands literally. Uh, But the point being, God has since from the very beginning uh, sought to reconcile, sought to lift up the heads of pitiful sinners like Cain and like David and like you and like me. David moves on in verse four to recount verses one and two that he was crying out to the Lord, confessing to God his present circumstances and God answered. God answered me from his holy mountain or from his holy hill. Um, the content of what God said to David and his, his specific answer isn't the point here. I think the point here is the location of God's answer. That's what's most important to us and to David. God's holy mountain or his holy hill can be a reference to many things. Our context here does not do much to clarify, but every single reference you find in the Old Testament and in the New, for the youth kids since we're going over Sermon on the Mount, Uh, um, When it references God on the mountain is a reference of rulership of God, whether that be Sinai where God issued his law to his people or to Zion, the highest point in Jerusalem where the anointed one rules. The point is clear to us When we see God on his mountain, we are given the sense of rulership, kingship, dominion, authority from God. David is by extension saying here that God answers us as he decrees and as he rules from his holy mountain. He is the one ultimately in charge. He is the one who is ultimately in control. And although David's renegade son has for this short season grabbed onto some form of earthly power in Jerusalem through human means, David knows that his answer, his vindication will come from the place where God is seated and where God is ruling. No one can overthrow God. And therefore what logically follows makes absolute perfect sense. As God is firmly and overwhelmingly sovereign, the sons of God can rest in his absolute sovereignty. That is the answer to trouble. God still rules. We move on to the third section, to the third heading. That is rest in trouble. Rest in trouble. I lay down and slept. I woke again for... The Lord sustained me. I will not be afraid of many thousands of people who set themselves against me all around. David sleeps. He is sleeping. When his very life is threatened, he sleeps. Sleep is a powerful illustration for us, the creature, to recognize that God is the creator. God does not sleep. God does not need sleep. God, rather, as David identifies, sustains. David goes through the entire cycle of sleep. I lay down, I slept, I woke again, meaning he got back up. Just to say, just to wake up, just to realize that God is still in control, that he is still sustaining him. Oftentimes the best we can do when we find ourselves in trouble is rest, to sleep. And in so doing, recognize that God still rules and reigns that and we still need to sleep. More recent illustration. Every one of us, every one of you went to sleep after the election, did we not? Uh, because we realize there's nothing else we can do. We cast in our vote. God still reigns. And we went to sleep that night. No use of doing research of election fraud. No use of counting and refreshing Google every single hour, every single minute. Eventually all of us slept. And this is the similar situation here. David sleeps because it would do him better to sleep rather than racking his brain and worrying all night long and the next morning being fatigued. Because when he awoke, David was renewed. He was refreshed by God's mercy as God is still ruling and sustaining. And he then recognizes that even with 10,000 enemies, he says, surrounding him, he would still sleep as God would still sustain him. Psalm 3 is often known, often lovingly called as uh, the morning psalm. As it describes David in the morning most likely when he wrote this, when he awakens and that this is his attitude. David's still in trouble. Yet David renewed and refreshed and reminded that God still sustains. Uh, this is his attitude, one of dependence, uh, one of trust. Uh, he's confident that God sustains him in the night with enemies pressing upon him. And he is confident that God will sustain him in this new day. The morning psalm. Do you rest in the Lord? Do you rest knowing that the ultimate goal of the Christian, as the book of Hebrews describes, uh, is to enter into the Lord's rest? Uh, Do you see that abiding and resting in God is one, if not the most, the safest place for the Christian to be? Rest in God. And recognize that he is God and you are not. Rest when you are in trouble. This brings us to our last heading. We'll wrap it up here. Salvation from trouble. Salvation from trouble, verses seven and eight. Arise, O Lord, save me, O my God, for you strike all my enemies on the cheek. You break the teeth of the wicked. Salvation belongs to the Lord. Your blessing be on your people. Selah. Uh, This final point follows the similar formula of petition and praise that you'll see in the rest of these psalms, especially in book one. Uh, David and many psalmists afterwards will write petitioning God to do something for them. Uh, He writes hoping and knowing and praying that Yahweh will answer all of these aforementioned prayers and ultimately will vindicate him or deliver him or save him. Verse 7 is an imprecatory prayer. Meaning it calls upon God to rain judgment upon David's enemies. It calls them to smite them on the cheek, strike them on the cheek, uh, to dash or to break the teeth of the wicked. Does this kind of prayer make you uncomfortable? Does David calling on God to smite his enemies upon the cheek and shatter their teeth make you Squirm in your seat. I would commend to you to have a healthy view of God's judgment, and God judges the sins of the wicked as much as He saves the hand of the righteous. We all know that there is none righteous, no not one, and yet David here still calls upon this imprecatory prayer. What do we make of this? David knew that even after his grave heinous sin with Bathsheba God still welcomes repenting sinners he restores them and withholds his judgment ultimate judgment from them because of his loving kindness so imprecatory prayers are as much as for our instruction and a warning for us understanding how truly heinous and ugly sin is as it is for the prayers of the psalmists asking for deliverance Let imprecatory psalms and imprecatory prayers remind you of your own sinfulness and God's mercy. Let them drive you to your knees confessing your sin and your state as David did. And let them draw you to call upon the Lord for deliverance and salvation. And let them instruct you and teach you to have God vindicate himself. Ultimately, he is coming to judge and coming to reign. And that every sinful deed will be accounted for. This final couplet of verses remind us that salvation is truly from the Lord as his blessing upon his people. This call finds its ultimate consummation in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Christ is the salvation of the Lord personified and he is the one who ultimately saves his people not just from their troubles, but from their ultimate trouble, from their sins. And when we lay down and sleep every night, we lay down in the comfort, knowing that Jesus truly did pay it all. There's nothing else required for the, the atonement of sins. And by his blood, we are healed, restored, reconciled, renewed, born again in him. Selah. Pause and Consider. Salvation belongs to Yahweh, your blessing be on your people. Christians live in a world of trouble. But when you turn to God, when you find yourself in trouble, you are surely to find a near and dear Savior Jesus through it. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we do not turn to you enough. In our self-sufficient minds, we think that we can solve problems, we can save ourselves, that we can make things right. And yet, Lord, here we studied the example of a king turning to you in trouble. And so, Lord, may we emulate this posture of humility. May we seek you uh, in the worst of times, knowing that uh, in our worst, uh, you, you appear to us as your best, as our Savior, as our Lord, as our Master, uh, one who stooped down and condescended, taking on sin, paying the penalty, and rising again. And so, Lord, may you be the one we seek, and may you be the one who lifts our heads. No other source, Lord. May that be true for us today and for the rest of our lives we pray in your son's matchless and powerful name, amen.